Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, it is the 14th of November, that means it is the day before the new power station, well the old power station, comes online and all of our energy worries are going to be uh, alleviated. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary. So a listener reached out to inform me that I was incorrect about something I had said in the last episode. In the last episode, I was saying that the government projections of how many electric vehicles will be on the road by 2030, that they just looked fake, that it was too neat a number, too neat a time frame. Now, I was aware when I said it that those numbers were originally put forward in the climate plan, I think the 2019 climate plan. But I have been told, and it made sense to me, that there wasn't any great faith in those numbers that they were created by one of the consultancy firms and it wasn't felt that there was any great certainty in them. So this listener reached out, he's someone who has knowledge of this area, and said actually the figures are not too bad, they actually could be correct. So I just wanted to highlight that at the start because I one, I should have said that there was a report that these numbers came from and I didn't, and two, apparently there are people who think they are more likely than I have been briefed on myself. They seem to know the area. They're probably more likely than me to be correct. So I will graciously admit that, Michael, and avoid saying anything negative about consultants. Well done. I'm a martyr. I think I've become overly predictable because as they told me that, the email they sent me just had in brackets, and I know what you'll say about consultants. (laughs) And I felt kind of like I, I, I had, you know, the standard, like, movie racist of 1990 response whereas he said it and my immediate thought was but some of my best friends are consultants yes lovely people there was also a general acceptance that we were right and there's no way we'll hit that target because of the government but that you know still important to know that we were wrong about that as or i was wrong about that aspect. <laughs> that's the, that's the most important qualification right there i like admitting when i was wrong yeah you do you love it. I do it. It's an outlier in Irish media. Today is the anniversary of the death of the Emperor Justinian. Just thought I'd throw that in there. So, uh, one other thing to mention before we, we go into it. Uh, Gript has now fully released the last five months of the disinformation digests that Kinzen put together for the Department of Health. I will put a link to them at the bottom of this podcast. There's a little editorial above it that we wrote up just explaining why they were released and the issue with misinformation firms, fact checkers, people like that, and uh, particularly ones that are not state affiliated in that they have control over the information that people see and there is an increasing reliance on them. But very little is known about their internals and If they do have some sort of bias, it becomes nearly impossible to identify it. Reduces the public's trust in the the information they're shown, Michael, which is a bad thing. That's a bad thing, very bad thing. Public should be trusting and uh, should have high levels of trust and should be able to trust. Poor dears, it's very upsetting for them when they can't trust. No, I mean, this should also be, let's all be reasonable here, you should trust nothing you hear in the media. And yes, I note the oddness of a media podcast saying... Don't trust the media. But you can trust us when we say that. Absolutely. You can trust everything we say, except the bits that Gary gets wrong. Thanks, Michael. You're really leaning into that part. (laughs) Yeah. I'm very upset about the death of Justinian. You know, it catches up on me every year. Yeah, it's it's a hard one. So, I suppose we would um, 
We spent a great deal of time talking about antigen testing, Michael. We did a fair bit of time, I think, to the point at which we had more than one or two people saying to us, when the fuck are you going to stop talking about antigen testing? Business groups did the same. I know groups like ISMI were lobbying the government to allow antigen testing. But then we discovered it was snake oil, Gary. It was just all snake oil. We were misled. Philip Nolan, who was a member of NEFIT, and now has been gloriously promoted to the general directorship of the uh, Science Foundation Ireland for his fine work. Does that mean he's the boss of science in Ireland now? He runs science. I mean, that's not technically correct, but it amuses me to think it, so yes. Basically, he's the king of science now. That's a great job. And uh, congratulations to Philip Nolan on being appointed King of Science in Ireland. But Philip Nolan said that uh, ancient testing was snake oil. He did. Which was received quite a uh, quite a response from some international scientific figures who said things like, you don't know what you're talking about. It was the best bit of comedy since the, f- since the Soup Nazi episode in Seinfeld, Gary. It was... A laugh riot. Well, actually, many groups have been have been pushing for the adoption of antigen testing on the basis that antigen testing could actually enable people to uh, better control transmission. Yes. And that by making people aware if they were infectious and with uh, repeated cycles of testing, you would, they would become very accurate. You could basically have a situation where people could move around a lot more freely. You wouldn't need things like COVID certs which actually don't really make a lot of sense. They could move more freely, but really, I suppose, on the basis that using the antigen testing, they would identify an infectious person more quickly and with, and therefore remove the infectious person from the soup of society more quickly than would have otherwise have occurred. And therefore, re- hopefully, the idea for that would be to reduce levels of infectivity in the population. Because we're all very, I think we're all puzzled. I mean, we've we, we've vaccinated virtually everybody. We're we're all washing our hands. Maybe we're le- maybe we're laxer than we are. Maybe it's because of elements wicked unvaccinated elements in the population. But we're just seeing the cases keep going up and up and up and up and up. And in other countries, they're not doing it the same way. In Denmark and in Sweden, other places, they seem to be fewer cases. But then again, I I I have a strong suspicion, Gary, and this is just nothing but my opinion that this. All we're looking at is a lot of sine waves that aren't quite in sync and who is high today may be, may be low tomorrow. But anyway, one of the things that we other people have been doing and have been doing for a while and seems to be potentially having an effect has been the use of these antigen testings to get people to be able to be opening up the economy without necessarily leading to explosive increases in the caseloads. Yeah, I know. I think the thing about antigen testing compared to COVID certs, obviously you can do them together, but the issue with COVID certs was always that vaccinated people can pass on the vaccine. Sorry, can pass on the uh, the virus. And we know from some of the research that vaccinated people have the same max sort of levels of viral load of those who are unvaccinated. We also know that in those people, that peak is shorter. So there is a briefer period where they are as infectious. And that is the the benefit of the vaccine on transmission. The problem with COVID certs is that uh, there's many problems you can pick, including some of the civil liberty ones. But on a practical level, you can have a person who is vaccinated, but spluttering, clearly sick, could have COVID, could be infectious, legally allowed in somewhere because they have a certificate. And a perfectly healthy person who is not vaccinated or doesn't have the cert, not allowed in 
Whereas if you were using an antigen testing system, one of those people would come up with COVID if they had it, and one of those wouldn't, and then it just becomes a lot easier for people to move around. One thing I did find interesting is that Neffet pushed against these hard. They they came out against antigen testing for so, so long. And even when they brought it in recently, they brought it in in the most cack-handed fashion, which looked like it was designed entirely to give them the ability to say they had brought it in after considering the evidence. But it was limited to, I think it was, if you were a vaccinated close contact of someone, you would be sent an antigen, uh, some antigen tests by the HSE. Yes, in the post. Because you were no longer um, required to take PCR tests. Now they're talking about people who are engaging in high-risk activity should take these things twice a week. But one thing I did want to mention there, Michael, when Neffet went into the Dahl committee and said and started talking about antigen testing and started talking about how they didn't work and they were terrible, they admitted that they had not read a report by the government's chief scientific advisor. That is correct. We re- re- we, I remember that well, yeah. Too busy, too busy. To go into a, a meeting entirely about antigen testing and to just say, well, we haven't bothered to read the report by the China's chief scientific advisor to the government, I thought was negligent in the extreme. But it was also known that that report was very supportive of antigen testing. And if Neffet isn't going to wasn't going to back it, why bother reading the report? That seemed to be the uh, yes view from Neffet. But interesting. So Nolan has now is now the is going to become the head of Science Foundation Ireland. I think in January, Michael. Yes. Do you know who the current head of Science Foundation Ireland is? Is the chief scientific officer to the government? It's the chief scientific officer to the government. <laughs> Professor Mark Ferguson. That's brilliant. I like that. That's very, very good. So the person who was was pushing for antigen testing on the basis that they appear effective is going to be replaced by the person who publicly called antigen testing snake oil. Well, you know, Gary, science is ultimately, it's a dialectic, it's a dialogue, it's, it's an evolution, it's a competition, it's a discussion. The science is never settled, it's never final. So it's perfectly normal. You're going to have people with strong opinions and strong disagreements. It would be helpful if the people who are disagreeing with them about it being snake oil had actually read the report uh, that the other person had read had written to argue that they weren't snake oil. But there you go. I mean, you can't have everything in life. I was not impressed with the committee after they just let that one go. Yeah, that was that was the kind we, of we haven't read it. Yeah. Okay. Sure. No, that's a, that's the time when you say now you you take the cane out and you bend them over the knee and you give them a jolly good thrashing and say don't come back in here on with that kind of shoddy work again, boys. Or maybe just a simple: you say you haven't read it. Do you think perhaps you should have? Like a child who just Michael just doesn't do the reading work. No, I think that I, over the knee with the cane, the thrashing. I think that there's enough of this chatting to these people. You, know? you have to. Uh... I did enjoy. I did enjoy the aspect of that conference of, we've just dumped antigen tests into various things, and look, <laughs> they're coming up with results. You're like, well, that's very impressive, but how is that relevant to what's happening here? It's like he added them to the water. Oh, look, there's an antigen test. Um, do we know? Yes. If they're going to be subsidised or cheap, I mean, there's. I know they're talking about supplying them through pharmacists and maybe possibly through GPs at a subsidised level. Uh, in the UK, you can get quite a few of them free, can't you? And I know the UK and certain parts of the continent. Here, 
you can get a pack of five for 30 is it i think you can get a pack of five for 30 from one of the multiples yeah, so there are, there are reports that the government is looking to um to introduce a subsidy on them so that people will pick them up from pharmacies and things at a, at a discount. But I don't think that's been confirmed. So if you're in the UK, you can get, I think, two boxes, uh, each of seven kits, uh, seven tests, for free from any pharmacy. That's right, yeah, seven, seven by two, four, yeah, that's it. I did like the list of um, of high-risk activity. Yeah, that's good, because, shall we say, there's, there seems to be an asymmetry within that, shall we say. Yeah, it's like, do you go to the cinema? Do you eat in restaurants? Do you meet people outside your house? Do you play indoor sports? Do you go to gyms? I just listed so many things that you think they would just go, just give them to everyone. But... I, it, it, on that list, it includes going to nightclubs, doesn't it? It does, yeah. So you have risky activities are meeting people outside your house and going to nightclubs. Now, I'm not saying that people shouldn't go to nightclubs, but I am fairly sure, Even I'm not king of science of Ireland, but I'm still fairly sure that as a, as a, as a location of risk, going to a nightclub is a riskier behaviour than meeting someone outside your house. I'm willing, that's, that's a hill I'm willing to, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say die on, but I'm, you know, have a bad cold on anyway. But it's just a list. I mean, if you, I don't know, Gary, what's left in life of somebody who's even less than averagely active that wouldn't be is not actually included on that list what 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 kind of things are not high risk on the basis of that swimming swimming by yourself in the sea yes outdoor sports are not included indoor sports are sharing a car with someone is included i can't remember if public transport is included but let's work on the assumption that nearly everyone in the country is engaging in high risk behavior yeah, I think that's probably the way it works. I think that's where we sh- we're going, and that's where certainly we sh- we're supposed to be going. We should understand that we are all high-risk actors. I wonder what science they're going to say changed. Because you remember with masks, Michael? It was, well, the science changed, so we have to support them after saying they would kill you. You know the funny thing about the science changed? You know the, thing the, you know the science that changed with the masks? Well, I asked two doctors who had previously been very sceptical, and publicly been sceptical on the issue of the use of the masks for all sorts of very good and very sensible reasons. And they say, oh, the science changed. And I asked them what science had changed. And the funny thing is I didn't get any response. So I asked them again. And you don't want to be the kind of guy who just sort of becomes like monomaniacally asking the same question all the time. So I asked a third time and left it. But three months, four months, whatever it is later, I still haven't got an answer on that one. Did you ever find out, Gary, what science had changed regarding the no, masks? No, I think I, I think I sent a couple of requests in at the time, a couple of press requests to different people, because we'd been going through a lot of the research that was being done, Michael, and there were like good pieces of research being done, and there are massive gaps in the study of um, masks to begin with. Yes. They were right about that part. But then there was a sudden, well, the science has changed, and we were kind of, I remember on the show we were trying to work it out, and we are like, well, a month ago... There was this thing, but that wasn't really medical. That was more a sort of an engineering piece. And there was the uh, the UN coming out and saying that people should use masks. But everyone acknowledged that that was just political 
more than anything else. So uh, that's not really a medical research paper anyway. That's just the UN. Um, but no, we were never able to pinpoint. The science had changed, but what, what paper had been published? The, no, but both of us were very, were very much impressed by the Bangladeshi study. But the Bangladeshi study is very much post-factum. That happens after the science had changed. Yeah, I think at the at the time, the best study was probably, there was one from, was it Yale or Harvard? It was, they did it with economists. To be honest, that study went, we're unsure of the impact that this will make, but here is the potential range, and it's a low-cost intervention. And if we're wrong, like, there's no real harm. It's a lot less, well, it's, a lot less harmful than some of these other things people were considering at the time. Um, but no, we're never able to quite pin down what that was. Almost like there was no particular thing that actually came out and there was some sort of political motive, Michael. Almost. Almost like that. Yeah. But it's very effective to say the science has changed as long as there's no follow-on questions like, could you cite the paper? I wonder, did we used to have follow-on questions? in, the, in You know, in... in 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 the long, long ago, far away times? I believe I once saw one at a press conference in 1995. There were questions about that. Because we don't do that anymore in Irish politics. Irish, Irish uh, journalists with Irish politicians or Irish science people, certainly. The old follow-up question is just, that's relegated. That must be very much the old times stuff. Occasionally, some of the questioning of Neffet reminded me of, there's a uh, brass eye, the, um, the comedy sketch here. There's one of the episodes where they go and they, they interview someone in the Navy, an officer, because a man has been f- sacked from the Navy for being gay. And they sit down with his officer and say, why would you fire someone for being gay? Surely that has no impact. And the officer simply explains to them that gay men attract radar. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. That was, that's what I was, that was very good. Imagine the fear of going to a ship knowing there was a gay man on board. And you lay your head down to sleep and you think to yourself, my God, will I wake up and everyone else will be dead? <laughs> so the, And it just cuts the reporter going, so there was a good reason after all. That was sort of it. I'm like, well, they've said something. It has to be true. It's not my job to say they're a liar. A mutual friend of ours who actually ended up going to a number of the the conferences, they said because they got so fed up with the questioning where there was literally only one journalist who seemed to be actually interested in asking any serious questions, that none of the questions that they wanted to know the answer to wherever were seen were, were being asked or the follow-ups were being asked. So I think they ended up going to four or five and writing a few articles. They said, they said it was a, an absolutely shameful, shameful uh, episode for the established Irish media, the, the, the unwillingness. I, I think I can tell exactly who you're talking about because I do remember watching the government press conferences and seeing him turn up after a while and going, why the hell is he there? This is not exactly his field. It was just really... Waspish, well, he's a kind of waspishly annoyed person anyway, but he's really annoyed by that whole thing. So, should we go on to the poll, Michael, which contains nothing surprising? Poll slash polls. We have two of them, don't we? We have the the Ireland Thinks Mail on Sunday poll, which is good news for Sinn Fein, bad news for Finnegal. Sinn Fein up to 32, up 1, Finnegal up 1 to 17, Finnegal down 2 to 24. And then, and then roll the drums with the Behaviour and Attitude Sunday Times poll. 
which is Sinn Féin on 37. So 37 or 32 in the Irish Mail on Sunday. So it's somewhere between 10 and 16 points higher than uh, Fine Gael. Yeah. Now, okay, let's, we all know that opinion polls at this stage in the election cycle are much like uh, weather systems in the far Atlantic. They can deepen and deepen overnight and suddenly become storm force and then just peter out into nothing. Or they can just stay steady and relentless and come across and rain over us for six weeks. We don't... We have no notion how solid these figures may turn out to be. But for the sake of it, Gary, let's indulge ourselves. Fine Gael are on 21%, Fine Fáil on 20%, Sinn Féin on 37%. let us allow that something like that were to eventuate in the next general election. Now, that would mean that Sinn Féin are going to go... Sinn Féin got, what, 23% on the last, in the last election, am I right? That would see them going up by 14 points, which would be more than 50% increase in their vote. I mean, you're, but the big news here is, other than the fact that we get 37% of the vote, which will be a walloping result, the gap between them and the next biggest party will be so big that they would be looking at a really serious bonus. Now, remember, they should have got far more seats out last time than they did because they just didn't run enough candidates. Because when, And nobody... Any reasonable person, anyway, would not blame them. They had come off a dreadful result in the local election. To give to give an element of context to this, if Sinn Féin are on 37%, in 2011, uh, Fine Gael got 36%. 2011, and they ended up with how many? 50-something seats. Sorry, no, 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 just, no they went into it with 50-something seats. They came out of it with, like, 75, 70, 76. 70, yeah, that was, they were, I mean... A, couple, a week beforehand, they were they were looking like they were going to get over eighty seats. So they they come out with around seventy five, seventy six seats with thirty six percent. You know, what I mean, <laughs> and that's after the tussle of the Labour Party. Like if you're talking, if Sinn Fein can get a couple of percentage points higher and actually actualize that at the election, you're into like majority territory. You really are because if you look at historically. Okay, not for Finnegan and Finnegan, perhaps, but um, people before Profit, uh, the Socialist Party, the left, the other smaller left-wing parties, which I suspect, oh, I suspect, would suffer if there was a bit of a Sinn Féin tsunami. They are all going to transfer. They, those left votes tend to transfer pretty well to the left. There have been concerns about Sinn Féin and transfers, but all of the other left-wing parties got a boost from the last election. Some of them got people in that would not have gotten in if Sinn Féin had run more candidates. And going into the next election, they are going to want it to be very clear that they will transfer to Sinn Féin so that Sinn Féin will transfer to them. I mean, Sinn Féin, if they come in at that, they will devastate many of the other left-wing parties, though. But they may actually still get enough to just bring in other people on transfers. If they can keep this going, if they keep trending upwards, even a couple more percentage points, and get that to an actual election, which is always the big ask... Yes. It will have been many years since we've seen a result like that in Irish politics. Also, how badly do you have to fuck up so it becomes conceivable that Sinn Féin gets a majority? Yeah, that's the thing. That Sinn We are now moving into territory where people can talk about, one, a majority of any from anybody, and two, a Sinn Féin majority, Gary. Now, we had pretty well all sat around and made agreed with ourselves that after 2011, 
Finnegan had missed the opportunity to get the Ottoman majority, and then the, the the splintering and the fracturing had occurred within Irish politics, and no party would ever again be in a position to seriously consider getting an overall majority, or even or close enough to form essentially to form, say, a minority government. Those days were gone. Let alone Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin, which had been this toxic brand for so many people that they would just not countenance voting for Sinn Féin because of the historical issues around Sinn Féin, because of the current issues regarding the, the way it is perceived not still to be a normal political party, that there is a lack of understanding or transparency about the way the internal politics of Sinn Féin as a party work, the relationship between the North and the South, uh, branches of Sinn Féin, so on and so forth. All these, whether these concerns are justified or not justified, they exist and many people have them. We are now at a point where we're not only saying that Sinn Féin seems to have liberated itself sufficiently from those to, to be in a position to be the world, by distance the biggest party, but actually getting close to governing by itself. That is remarkable. I mean, if you're looking, if you look at during the height of the boom, I heard, Ahern got between about 39 and maybe 42%. Yeah, between 39 and 40. Yeah, yeah, that's about Over yeah. the course of, of ruling through the boom, incredibly popular party at that time. Even if you go back to Hahi, you're only looking at about 44, 45%. Yeah, the ironic, the iron, well, ironic thing, I mean, uh, Charlie probably gets up to around, he, maybe does he hit 46? He gets 45, certainly. Um, at a different time, Charlie would have had his overall majority. The difference was partly because Hawhey himself was so polarizing, and partly because politics still, it was still where it was in the eighties. Fianna Fáil really did not get transfers. Fianna Fáil is a much more transfer friendly party now than it was. I mean, it was it was more transfer friendly by the time you get into sort of the ninety seven election. Such a shame! It's so much less friendly to actual votes. <laughs> yeah, to first preferences, indeed. Back in the day, trans transfer friendly, yeah, but not. But the old days when Fianna Fáil might come get forty eight percent of first preference votes, that must seem like I, I, very much again an example of the long, long ago, far away times. Hard for Fianna Fáil. Young Fianna Fáilers are told these things, but you can see in their eyes, they don't really believe that it ever actually happened. It's just part of the old stories. Yeah, it's an incredible story. And But the point you make, what do you have to do to be so bad? Sinn Féin now have got a little bit of a, I hate the phrase, but a little bit of a perfect storm. We have large numbers of people who are just so fed up with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael that they have reached the point where they say, oh, well, I, it's, I know, I know. It's a, I never would have said, oh, fuck, I'm going to vote for Sinn Féin. Out of a sense of just fed upness. But they also, on the back of it, Gary, they actually have a popular policy. Now, we have probably referred to it before, but there's a thing which comes from American political campaigning called an 80-20 issue. And that's what every politician wants to have on their side. And that's what you want to start with in any political campaign. As many 80-20... Now, you don't get many of them because it's they tend to be not issues that everybody agrees about. But an 80-20 issue is where 80% of the population agree is on one side and 20% is on the other. And you you get to be on the same side as the 80%. Now, we had a, a survey, a poll done, a respectable poll done a couple of weeks ago, which said that 82% of Irish voters are opposed to carbon taxes. 
Now, we're not making a point here, Gary, about the rights or the wrongs of carbon tax. We're just saying that's the political reality. 82%. Sinn Féin is the only party. I'm saying the only party. I don't know what A2's position. I think A2 is probably the same position. But of the large parties, Sinn Féin is opposed to carbon tax. So now they have a vastly fed up and pissed off and tired electorate. And they have an 80-20 issue. And it's a real 80-21. It's one, in, it's a hard, it's one that costs it's money. It's an economic issue. And it's one that's being concretized in front of people's eyes every time they fill up their tank of petrol, every time they buy a bag of coal, every time they pay their electricity bill, every time they buy a bale of briquettes. They are reminded of it. And it is the government policy to make it worse every single year. They have promised. They've promised that. They've said, you think it's bad now? Don't worry. We're going to make it worse and worse and worse. There has been somewhat of a... um, Some of the policies this government's come out with, it's like they're looking to lose votes. Like the (laughs) the policy they just had to reverse, the policy they had planned to bring in, where they were going to treat uh, loans from parents to children as taxable income. Yeah. You know, Michael, and I remember, I, I have heard people say, you know, there is a strong argument that this needs to be done for, there needs to be a regularization of this, and it is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. But as soon as I heard it, I was like, so, just, just to be clear here, Fine Gael wants to tell its voters that if they give money to their children so their children can put together, let's say, a deposit on a house. Yes. Fine Gael want to tax them as if that was income. <laughs> that and no much... one went, lads. Is this what do we what do we think our voters would think about this? Well, I, there is there is there are voices Gary around who said that is precisely what happened in the in the days after the announcement or the leaking of the, of the proposed this the proposal to, to start putting tax on parents' gifts that there were there were TDs all around shall we say South Dublin and the the wider Leinster area going are you fucking serious I mean mum and dad come along give you the moolah to get the deposit down so you can finally buy a bloody house. And now you're going to tax it. No, 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 no. What are we? Are we fucking Sinn Féin? Uh, quote, unquote, one person. I talked to a couple of the Fine Gael lads and they tried to defend it, but in a sort of, you know, like gun to their head. So there was, this, there was well, you know, there's, there's a lot of protections in there and there's a lot of thresholds. So a lot of people aren't going to hit those thresholds because of the, you know, the ability of parents to give tax-free gifts to their children and um you know things like that and then there's the the uh the total amount of gifts you can give your children over your life and i was like uh-huh uh-huh yeah none of that's going to matter though is it because all that's going to happen is you're going to announce this policy and then you're going to be slaughtered because you're saying we're going to tax. i mean just frame it simply as it is you're going to tax stuff that parents are giving their children on the face of it that just what you're going to say when you give I give my children something I'm going to be taxed for it that just doesn't feel like a very filial thing to do it doesn't feel like a very nice thing to do full stop no I mean I mean you can go Michael like you know there are regulations about that already and there are thresholds and there are all of these things and none of that matters to the public because it is just another thing you are doing and the immediate response is just going to be but sure they would have paid tax on that anyway why are you taxing it again Absolutely, it's all taxed income. And then what are you going to do? Come out and say, well, actually, that is the regulation that one thing goes over a certain amount of money. It should be taxed even between uh, parents. 
Which I think is just one of those things governments don't like to remind people as a regulation. Yeah, and they don't want to remind people that the fact is that the reason this is a, a live issue anyway is the fact that because of government regulation, there has to be a minimum deposit amount. And because of the failure of the government to provide houses, the price of houses has gone slightly higher than people perhaps ought to be. So now kids who and also remember that these young people can't rent a house, Gary, because there are no houses to rent. So they have to buy anything that comes up. But there's no way in the world that they're ever going to be able to save the money themselves. So the only hope is mum and dad, if they're lucky enough to have a mum and dad, who have a couple of quid in the in the in the bank, and we're now saying no. We oh yeah okay we're we're going to let you help your children buy a house. We'll allow you to do that, but by God, we're going to make you pay for it. Actually, I I do have good uh, good news on the rental front, Michael. Oh yes, pleased to announce to you, Michael, that the rental capacity of Limerick City has increased by thirty three percent since we last discussed it. Twelve. There's twelve. Yes. Oh well, wow. I mean, what? I think we should all be relieved that what, frankly, a lot of people I think were getting a little bit worried, Gary, that you'd created this sense, and I would say maybe an unnecessary sense of panic about the state of the rental market in Limerick. It has obviously, I wouldn't say quite resolved itself, but it's on the way to resolving itself. I mean, it's gone up 33% in the matter of a couple of days. I mean, by the end of the week, next week, we could be looking at 15 Maybe 20 houses. I mean, yeah, if we keep this rate up, Michael, uh, sometime in mid-March we'll hit, you know, three figures. Well, yeah, it depends, of course, on what the situation with the students is. I mean... If this is something actively being looked at by the department, there is a report somewhere that just says rental capacity in Limerick increased by 33%. (laughs) And there will be no absolute numbers in that report. No, 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 no. There, There may be a graph... With a trend figure. Just with an, an unlabeled axis. Just one axis, not labeled. Yeah. <laughs> but there are going be, ain't going to be no numbers on it, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, there are now 12 rental properties in Limerick City. That nice house that was up for North Circular, is that still for rent? I wonder. Well, that was 4,500, wasn't it? Uh, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, and no, it's still there. Four bed, five bath, a tree rating, North Circular Road in Limerick. Does it say, is there a swimming pool at all? Because I have to say, I mean, North Circular Road, I'm sure it's a very pleasant place to live in. But 4500 does strike me as expensive. It doesn't have a swimming pool, but it does have a wood-burning stove, wet room bathrooms, and a cleaning service. And, of course, the floors are hardwood oak. Ah, well. Ah, okay. Hardwood oak. And you can bring your own rugs. Some nice Persians, some Kilim. Hmm, jolly good. So anyway, yes, it's good to see that the Limerick, uh, Limerick issue is easing off. Labour. I don't know if you noticed uh, in the in the uh, behaviour and attitudes. T- Labour were down two to three percent, uh, and they were on four percent in uh, the in the other poll. You know, it was funny, wasn't it, Gary? We're, we were all waiting around to see if it would happen or how it would happen. You know this the rise of the populist far right and you know sectarian bigoted politics that might that might manifest itself here as it has manifested itself we are told in other parts of Europe and no there we are looking looking scanning the horizon to see where it might come from and lo and behold it was in the Labour Party all the time I mean why not Michael you know it's a fantastic scenario isn't it. 
you have Adon getting up to speak to the to the faithful, you know, keeping the red flag flying with that rather, I think, unfortunate backdrop. It doesn't work for them. Where he said that Adon, for those who may not have heard it, has decided that the practice of religious patronage of schools needs to be ended. And if that requires a referendum, we should do it and we should win it. To loud applause from the floor, he said, let's get them out. Now, Gary, I'm going to go so far as to say to you that if you were to say, let's get them out, put that with those words into the mouth of many other politicians in any other context, that would be regarded as being a fairly distasteful, nasty kind of thing to say. I think were they to be gotten out at this point, all they would feel is a sense of relief. Desperate relief. Thank God that's over. Thank God the torture is over. Please don't take this cup of from. I have been talking, I think probably you have, uh, in, in parallel as it were, at different times to people who on this subject within the uh, church churches, I should say here, and what the, the, what the better strategy might be. And there is no doubt that historically, there has been an overdevelopment or an overemphasis, an overly large part, large part role played, especially by the Catholic Church in the patronage of schools here, and which has meant that there was, and perhaps continues to be, a significant underservice of a non-religious market, which is now being met by, say, for example, uh, Educate Together, or other manifestations of school boards, which choose different denominational organizations for themselves. Some still actually choose Catholic patronage or the patronage of one of the other churches. Some have mixed denomination, multi-denominational, non-denominational, all that kind of thing. But one of the problems that the, the church has is that when they actually go and they ask local communities and parents who have children in these hopes, do you want the church to divest in this, from this particular school? Or do you want to continue having this a school with inverted commas and a catholic ethos that many cases very large percentages very large majorities of the parents end up saying no they want a catholic ethos they want the school to continue as it is they don't want an alternative i think myself from the point of the case the, the notion that you you must have seen this guy that people talking in the same party as they are in this about indoctrination and brainwashing that goes on in Catholic schools. Now, Gary, there may have been a time when this went on successfully. Maybe the Jesuits are still doing it in Belvedere, although I haven't seen any evidence. Uh, well, maybe social justicely, maybe they're doing it. But the notion that there is some kind, that Irish Catholic schools represent some kind of brainwashing cultic capacity. If they're doing it, Gary, they are really, really bad at it. Considering they've had the, They've been responsible for the education of the children of the country in 80% of them, 90% for the last X number of years. Look at every single significant social referendum, social movement, political in the last 20 years. Has the Catholic Church or the, or the Catholics, have they won any one of them? They're very bad at this. The problem Adon has, you see, it's not, the problem is, one. Re, you, you don't need one referendum because what they want what they really want to do here is they want not just to get them out of the schools. They also want to expropriate the property. Well, there's lots of difficult parts. I mean, for example, 
The Constitution, which we still have, for example, the Constitution says that the state acknowledges that the primary and natural educator of the child is the family and guarantees the respect, the inalienable right and duty of parents to provide, according to the means, for the religious and moral, intellectual, physical and social education for their children. So this, the Constitution actually has very strong, very strong protections. Yeah, but there's lots of people who don't like that part anymore, Michael. <laughs> yeah. You see, that was that was great when you could, you know, when you didn't hold a lot of cultural and political power. But now that you do, that's kind of stopping you from doing things you'd like to do. So it's no longer a protection for you. So you obviously you have to get rid of it so you can do what you want, because obviously that will that will never come back to you when you know you lose power, and you have removed, what some would say is a clear constitutional protection from the overreach of a state into actively indoctrinating children. Yes, you see, because it's, it, in fact, as you say, Gary, it goes on to say the state shall not oblige parents in violation of their conscience and lawful preference to send their school children to schools established by the state or any particular type of school designated. Yeah, I think there are certain things the state does that uh, arguably are not totally in compliance with that already. You think? I think you could make that argument, Michael. I think it's not a very popular argument, and I don't think it will be made, because you, what are the things about 80-20 issues? And you would think that school divestment might be an 80-20 issue. The problem that Adon actually may have is that it's like a 95-5 issue, or maybe like a 99-1 issue. There's The thing with an 80-20 issue is you have an opponent. Yeah. The stories that do best in media... And this is just an example of why this is important. Are not the stories that come out very strongly on something. They're the stories that come out and piss one group off. But in a way, another group will also get involved. They are stories that create conflict. Because there is or represent conflict. If you don't have an opponent, you can make all of the best points you want. But you can't create the conflict you need to actually get people motivated and to make it a voting issue, and to build up your own profile by kicking the crap out of those people who everyone knows is wrong. So what Adon is saying is very popular, but it's too popular. It's like trying to punch a sandbag. The church isn't going to defend itself. Yeah, you'll get the media that'll run all these great pieces about how we should do it, and you might get you know, David Quinn, people like that will come on and defend it. But even within the church, there's no appetite for a fight with this. You, you can't fight them. So there's... It's not an eighty twenty issue because you can't create conflict. It depends on what you how you frame what you frame to be the principal issue. If you're talking about divestment, everybody in the in the church when I say the church here, I mean the Catholic Church, because this it wouldn't be true of say the Church of Ireland. I wouldn't say I think the Church of Ireland church schools are probably pretty well subscribed, and if anything, I I don't think. That, they're looking to get out of educate the, the schools that they have. I think the, the, the schools the Church of Ireland holds, it will want to keep a pretty tight grip on. The Catholics want to get out because all sorts of practical reasons. And also they just, they have lost their confidence. They don't want to be involved in another fight. As you say, they're just going to get a bit bet up and around. And to what purpose? The problem, okay, there, one is the, the property, the actual property side of it, which is a separate thing. The problem for the church is that you... If you, you you say it's a popular issue, but again and again, when you poll people in local areas about whether or not they want this school to have X type of ethos or Y type of ethos, 
even if people are not Catholic, even if, uh, in the sense that they're not practicing Catholics or regular Catholics, a lot of them want their children to have a what they call a Catholic education. And the church is caught between this, the hierarchy, if you like, is caught between the situation where they, I would say a large part of them just desperately want to get out of it. They want to run for the hills. And they, they don't want to be on the school boards. They don't want to be on the boards of management. They don't want to be, because remember, the other side of this, Gary, is they're now coming in for a hell of a, 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 a shellacking from their own people. Because, for example, the new, the, the new gender uh, policies that are being introduced and the new social and sexual policies, they're going to go into Catholic schools. And the bishops and the clergy that are involved, they're going to get shellacked by the conservatives on their own side for being complicit and compliant with uh, policies in anthropology, which is repugnant to Catholic understanding and teaching. I mean, they're going to get it from both sides and they're going to get it good and hard from both sides. So, I, yeah, they, they'd love to be out of it, but it's very hard for them to get out of it. Yeah, it's the sort of, uh, if it happens, there will be the church going, no, please, stop. Not that. <laughs> How terrible. But look, you, you talk to some of the bishops or the priests, and they will openly say, like, what is the point of holding all these schools when we do nothing with them? This image of the church with this stranglehold on the religious development of the children in those churches, there are a few things that could be further from the case. The church doesn't have the will to do that anymore. Like, let alone the ability, it's just not interested in it. No, absolutely no interest, no capacity to do it. I mean, I think there are probably lay people in the church who would, would like them to do it. Oh, yeah. And I think that, in, in a sense, the, the, the long-term strategy, the best strategy for them, would be to radically reduce the number of schools they have that carry the title Catholic school, but leave in those schools, those schools that decide to be Catholic, to actually be Catholic. But what Adon is looking for is something way beyond that. Okay? Adon does not want any form of religious schooling in the country. He does not want this tax dollars going towards any... He wants a completely secular. He wants a completely secular. Do you... I mean, Michael, you say that, but do you have any great faith that what Adon says is what Adon actually cares about? Oh, now you see. Now you're asking trick questions now, Gary. I mean, it's like saying, you know, someone coming out and saying, oh, I care very much about the homelessness crisis, but uh, you can't build anything near me. I mean, is, are you saying it'd be like someone saying they cared desperately about homelessness and they said it was a, a crisis issue, but would vote four or five or six or seven times against any form of building in their local area. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, Something where someone's words are later shown by their actions to be totally worthless, if not lies. I see what you mean, yes. That there may actually be a disconnect between what they're saying and what they do and what they do and what they believe that it may actually all just be some kind of a, a political confection. Yeah, I, I, I think you make a strong argument that there are certain people within the Labour Party and you could replace everything they say with the noise of a white noise machine and you would come out of it knowing exactly the same amount about what they personally believe as you would have if you hadn't. Well, that's possible. If that is, If that were to be the case, well, then that would mean that, that those people obviously would have been vacuous moral zombies. And you make you could make your own judgment about that. 
what would be what I think more worrying is the fact that there are people in the hall who, when the moral zombies make their mating call of the usual sort of sectarian anti-religious bigotry, that they get the they get the the halloos and the halays from the people in the hall who. They really are like it's French, it's France, it's seventeen ninety one, and these are the Jacobins. The Labour Party has become such a fucking cliche of itself, and yet there are very, very fine people still stuck in it. Baffles me. They're really good people in the Labour Party. Well, we will we will see what happens with that. I can't say I was surprised with it. As a possible explanation of why why Sinn Fein may be going up in the polls. Now this doesn't explain everything, but I just wanted to mention it. So we were talking last week about the daft.e report and about how little rental capacity there is in the uh, country. Yes. But I went into, uh, I, I read through the report in a bit more detail after that because when we were recording last, it had only come out that day. And Michael, would it surprise you? What, one of the things that daft did is they uh, put together the average mortgage payment as well as the average rent for property types in each county so in each county they did that for a one-bed apartment a two-bed house a three-bed house a four-bed house and a five-bed house yeah and michael up to the point where you are getting uh into you know four five-bed territories and to a lesser extent in the three-bed territories yes you would expect your uh, rent to be significantly higher than your mortgage but michael it could be double your mortgage, the cost, if you had been able to get a mortgage for that property. When you go down to the lower end, there are points where the rent, you would expect it to be nearly triple what you would have paid in your mortgage. Now, Dublin, that is a different ball game. Dublin mortgages and uh, rents are much closer. But in the smaller end, you do still end up with rents that are more than twice what you would expect the mortgage on a property of that level to be. And, you know, that might be going some way to explaining to people why the government is not going terribly well. Because it's not just young people who rent. You're now getting a situation where older people are still renting because it's so difficult to get a mortgage. And your choice is rent and pay three times your what would your mortgage be in rent or move back in with your parents and try and save if that's a possibility for you. And one of the problems, of course, here is that we don't have any real tradition of long-term rent. It's like that you see on the continent, you know, in the the building where I lived in Milan, you had families that were there that were three and four generations in the same apartment, and that was just it was normally that kind of lease. But we have we don't have anything like that. So you people are looking at short term. I think this must be a his, historically anomalous though, Gary, for the gap to be. I'm, there may have been moments in time where it's been. But for the differential between the mortgage and the and rent to be so big. I mean, traditionally there's been a differential, but it's been to the advantage of renters, which makes sense because they're not holding the asset at the end of it. But like here in Longford, a mortgage on a two-bedroom home in Longford will average you €297 Euro a month. Very affordable if you want to go to Longford. Rent for a two-bedroom house in Longford. Now these are average figures. Obviously you're going to have a massive amount of variance, but these are averages. Rent for that bed for which a mortgage would cost less than 300 is 722 euro. Ooh. And these are the kind of differentials you're seeing because there is so little housing stock that it's, the market has just gone insane. And yeah, when you get up to four and five bedrooms, 
then you actually start seeing cases where the rent is basically equal to the mortgage or even situations in certain areas where the rent is below the mortgage. But anything below that, uh, like a, a one uh, an apartment, a two-bed house or a three-bed house, you're looking at it being more expensive and possibly two or nearly three times more expensive. And that is insane. And like That is bizarre. It should not happen. After all of the talk, when you consider the price increases that we're f- we've already seen and we are probably going to see down the line in building materials, that's not a blip that's going to go away in the space of six months. When you consider the already constricted housing uh, built supply of people working in the building industry in, in, in Ireland, and on top of that government policy regarding retrofitting, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's very hard to see that you're going to really have a substantial, I mean, a really substantial uh, increase in supply in, su- in a short period of time, where, which is going to materially affect the price of the, of, the, of, the, of the stock and start to bring house prices down. Because even, it's a weird concatenation of circumstances where even if you were able to get in there and start to ramp up supply, because of increase in costs, really significant increase, both in material and in labour, the, the, these houses the, 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 are going to be more expensive anyway. And even if you were to, even if you're expanding supply, you're not going to initiate, you're not going to actually have a significant impact on price. The thing I'm actually interested in, now I haven't seen anything on this, it's possible the government have released something on it and I've missed it. But if you look at the retrofitting thing, Michael, we're looking at average costs of about 55000 if you are renting and your energy bills are included in your rent, yes. as those energy bills goes up, there is, an, there is an incentive there for your landlord to retrofit the house. However, if they do that, you would expect that they would seek to increase rents in order to cover that cost. Yes. So what I'm interested in here is, are we going to see a situation where the retrofitting, either because of that, or because the government puts in place some other incentive, whether it's negative or positive, to get landlords to retrofit these houses, are we going to see a situation where those costs are going to be passed on to tenants and we're going to expect to see a a large-scale increase in rent? Now, obviously, with the rent caps, that makes it more difficult, but it would be very easy and perfectly on brand for the government to do something in order to get landlords to do this, maybe something like Michael, if you do this, you can raise your rent uh, above the rent caps. Yeah, I'd say possibly. I'd say what you might they might go back to the old favourite, which is to create uh, tax write offs for rental income. The problem I'd see there potentially happening is if you have, if I don't know how what the numbers are. But if you do have a significant number of rents where you have the utilities were included, the simple, the simplest thing will be that as contracts change, they will simply exclude the utilities and the tenants will be left to bear the increased price of the increase in energy costs. And there will be no incentive on landlords to actually retrofit the houses. I think that is the other side of the coin. So either landlords don't retrofit in which case it falls to the tenants to pay for ever-increasing levels of uh, energy payments on a property that they don't control. And in those cases, you you may find that while the rent caps, those temporary rent caps, of course, will may have a temporary dampening effect on the 
rental side of the that the other costs become effective punitive on the renter because of the increases the the government obviously government policy based increases and with no prospect that those costs are going to be brought under control because of some kind of uh, re- retrofit because there's no the, the landlord as it stands has no particular interest in doing that because the, Oh, it's all very well to say, well, you'll get your money back in. But how is the landlord going to get money back in 20 years? It was something I was thinking about after I looked through the retrofitting policies. And I haven't seen anything on it. There may not be anything. But it just seems like an area where the retrofitting could actually have an impact that I suspect has not been considered. I think you're probably right. I think it may actually produce a malin. A, a, a malin incentive to transfer the responsibility of the, of the increased uh, energy costs to tenants and and there and then disincentivize landlords from looking at investing in uh, the retrofit and by the way in the retrofit you're saying I was talking to somebody yesterday who's who had been doing a bit of work on the the costings of it and the Gary the, I, I'm not saying it's a, there are wild mad differentials. But there is no sense that these the numbers regarding the costs of retrofits, inevitably, and it's, I suppose it's reasonable, are in any sense could be described as firm. There's so many variables that when the, the, that he said he'd been talking to a number of different people who were all in the, in the trade, and he said all of the all of the quotes that are being given are being given for houses of a certain size, and they are always built post two thousand. And if you start to look at houses that haven't received any kind of work, remedial work at all, that were built in the 70s or the 80s, let alone back in the 50s or in the 30s, you're, the, 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 it has a really significant effect. Uh, potentially, it has a really significant effect on the, on, on the, the pricing. So the prices are some of the prices that are being bandied around by politicians are really quite misleading that the costs to this are going to be bigger and of course then the government is also recognizing that they're talking about this and at least in finance they're talking about the more successful this is inevitably the more it's going to cost the state i mean this is a program which could have massive economic impact you you don't you can't put in place a program in which you expect the average household take on 55,000 euro of debt and have that not impact on anything else. You're going to redirect a lot of money that would have gone to other markets into this particular market. And as we've said before, with everything the government has planned, Michael, it just looks like that market is going to overheat. It doesn't look like they've considered... What are all these massive infrastructural projects that we're going to do at the same time going to do to that market? Yeah, I don't think, to be fair, in some sense, they could plan all they like. If you are going to funnel the amount of money that they're funneling into a market in the time space that is provided for this, it's inevitable. I mean, it's, it's that you're going to have bottlenecks and price uh reflecting that is absolutely inevitable there is i can't see there's any way around it at all it's just i would say whoever if you can get in early get in early because it's 
<laughs> or don't get in at all because and if they come in why haven't you done this well i've asked my local retrofitter he said he'll fit me in in nine years time and he'll give me an estimate seven years time because you know there's no point in doing it now really we shall see we shall see listen i suppose we'll release the good and gentle people back into the wild and let them enjoy their sunday and we shall be back on the wednesday when it shall be still november but uh, another two sleeps or three sleeps closer to Christmas. All the best.